Well, good morning to everyone. Happy New Year to you. If we haven't met before, my name is Kyle Denny. I am the youth pastor here, as well as the, the director of finance. And, and that's a little weird, isn't it? Like, who lets the youth pastor handle the money? So uh, just, just rest assured, I do have an accounting degree. I, I am a, a CPA. But practically what that means is that you never know what you're going to get when you walk into the finance office. Like sometimes you may enter and I may be plugging away at a spreadsheet or, or doing payroll or reviewing the budget. And sometimes when you enter, you may get shot with a Nerf gun. So I, I still haven't apologized to Pastor Mark for that. I, I do need to do that yet. Um, but before we really get going, I, I wanted to use this opportunity uh, to, to talk about youth group, to do a behind-the-scenes of the youth group leaders, more specifically. So I think Tech is gonna put up that picture of our middle school and high school leaders. And I, I love this team of people. Like they, they all have different experiences, different backgrounds, but they have a fierce love for Jesus. And they all have stories of someone that built into them at a key moments, and they are dedicated to paying that forward to these students. And so when something is going well in youth ministry, it's because of God, right? God is doing the growing there, but he is using the efforts and the sacrifices of these leaders. Now, last year, feels good to say that, doesn't it? It's gone. Last year has been full of so many different pivots and direction changes that I just wanted to show you a little bit of what I got to see every day with these leaders um, so, so just a short list, before youth group even started up, before the fall season kicked off, they spent a 12-hour day planning and brainstorming with me, trying to figure out how we could do youth group in a safe and fun way. And so that, that led to doing youth group outdoors as long as we could without masks, but socially distanced. And then that, when the weather got a little too low, we brought it indoors with masks and socially distanced. But they've done even more than that. They, they have created weekly devotionals for the students. <laughs> they figured out how to do Zoom online when we had to do youth group that way for a little bit. They've put together survival packets for the students. Uh, they have done weekly, other weekly events like uh, uh, a movie night outside or, or pumpkin carving. I have one gentleman that's interning with me where he comes in every Wednesday and he helps me prep for youth group and, and we dive into God's word and we pray together. Before the cases really started to rise in December, uh, we, we offered an, an online school, and that was such a help. Like, I had two volunteers that would come, and, and they would spend 10-hour days with me once a week. And, and we'd open up the old building, and we would let the students come and, and do online school today, together in a, in a safe way. And that just helped with loneliness and anxiety. It gave the parents a break. And, and all of this was in addition to the three hours they, they give every Sunday night uh, to, to be with the students and to do youth group together. So I, I'm not exaggerating when I say when something is going well in youth group, it's because of this team of people. And so if you get a chance, would you pray for them this week? Would you pray for the students that they are, they're walking with? This is a hard time for everybody, but, but especially for, for students. And so we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 today. If you have a Bible around you and you want to flip there or pull it up on your phone, we'll put the, the verses up on the screen for you. But I, I have a preference where I just like to read the whole passage out in front of us to get a lay of the land to see where we're going. And so I'm going to do that. We're in uh, chapter 6 
of 1 Timothy in verses 3 to 11. And it reads like this. It says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and he understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy and strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. (laughs) But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. As you can see, I, uh, I picked a very happy passage for the, the first sermon of the year. You're welcome for that. But I, I figured it was only fitting that the director of finance should eventually speak about money, or, or more accurately, the desire for money. And, and we'll get there. It's actually going to get tied into New Year's. And so as I've been making my rounds, I've just been asking, like, has anyone been doing a New Year's resolution this year? Anyone in the crowd doing it? Okay, a couple of you. Nine o'clock didn't have any of them, so you guys are way above them. That's great. I typically try to do a uh, read the Bible in a year plan, and so I I print off a a Bible reading plan, and I tape it to the inside of my Bible, and I'm a checking kind of guy, like crossing off the list. So I cross off the list. Don't look too closely. You'll see that I didn't finish it last year, but I'm going to try it again this year, and this is my shameless plug. If you want to join me in that, uh, there are some reading plans in the back for you or online. You can just download them off the website. Uh, We have it next to the sermon notes. And I I would love for you guys to hold me accountable in that. Uh, But but it really begs the question, like, why are New Year's resolutions a thing? Like, it's one day. It's December 31st to January 1st. Like, why is it such a big deal? And some of you, or maybe most of you, are probably thinking, it's not. (laughs) But for those that do enjoy it, it, it's about having a goal and about building steps towards that goal. You're making a trajectory of where you are now and where you want to be. This passage that I just read is actually all about trajectories. It's about a trajectory of a desire for wealth and a trajectory of something else. Now, just as some background, the the Apostle Paul is is writing this letter to a younger man named Timothy. And and I have to ask, when when you were young, or, or maybe if you are young now, Have you ever had to correct someone that is older than you? Have you ever had to enforce something with someone that's older than you? And did you do it well? That is exactly where Timothy finds himself in place of. He he was urged by the Apostle Paul, who was his mentor, to stay where he is in Ephesus. And amidst other things, one of his primary responsibilities was to call out some false teachers, people who were older than him in the church, And this letter is Paul trying to encourage and train and help his young friend in the enormous task that he passed on to him. And we're actually at the end of the letter where Paul is talking about the desire for money. And and really, what Paul is going to lean into 
is that what you value determines the trajectory of your life. First, he's going to look at it through the false teachers' lives, the the people that Timothy is supposed to charge and rebuke. Paul says in in verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and, and understands nothing. Paul's not being petty over some minor theological differences here. These people, some influential teachers in Ephesus, are pushing a different teaching. It's one that directly contradicts Jesus' words. It doesn't line up with the gospel. Something has put these false teachers on this trajectory. Something has pushed them into advocating for a disease-ridden teaching. When Paul says that their teaching doesn't agree with sound words, he's actually drawing on medical vocabulary. That Greek word for sound is a word normally used to describe physical healthiness. It's actually where we get our word hygiene from. And yet Paul isn't using it here to describe physical healthiness. He's using it to describe spiritual healthiness. Their teaching, it isn't going to grow the congregation into a healthy spiritual people. The false teacher's teaching is going to poison them. Their teaching is going to lead to chaos and decay. See, these teachers had a form of teaching that that seemed godly, that seemed Christian, but it wasn't. It's like Snow White and the poison apple. Snow White was given an apple that resembled the right thing. It had a similar form, and it seemed like a harmless, delicious, crisp apple. But you can tell by the effects of it that it's bad. All she has to do is is take a bite of it, and, and she falls asleep, and she doesn't wake up. These false teachers would use some of the Old Testament law or, or at least reference Old Testament verses, not unlike Satan when he tempted Jesus. And it would seem like a harmless, delicious Christian teaching. But they would twist the meaning of the passage. They would use it to fuel their own speculations. It's got a shape of Christianity. It uses some of the same names and words, but it, it's actually poison. Like the meaning of the biblical passage gets abandoned and spiritual decay sets in because of it. The Word of God, the Bible, is meant to convict and transform. It's our spiritual lifeblood. It's what God uses to tell us about himself, what the Spirit uses to recognize and sharpen us with. But the Word of God isn't present under the false teachers. Their speculations are blocking what Jesus has said. They're contradicting what Jesus has said. And so it's not going to lead to spiritual health. It's going to lead to decay. It's not surprising then when Paul mentions that their doctrine doesn't conform to godliness. The teaching that is from God, that lines up with Jesus, that is spiritually healthy, should fall within and produce godliness. Now that's kind of a vague term, isn't it? Godliness. I mean, I guess a simple definition could be being more like Jesus. But even that falls short a little bit. We see that godliness is translated from the Greek word eusebia, and it's immensely important, especially in the later writings of Paul. One scholar named John Wainwright, after analyzing all the different passages and verses this word was in, he said godliness is when one's true desires, values, and passions, as indicated in every relationship and activity, are fixed on the person of God who is experienced through a spiritual relationship in the hearts. And, and I'm going to remove those clarifiers because that's, that's a little bit of a long definition. And I'm just going to talk through godliness like this. Godliness 
is when one's true desires, values, and passions are fixed on God. At first glance, it sounds nice and everything, right? You can throw an amen at that. But the more you marinate on it, the heavier that gets. Are my desires, the the things that I want to accomplish, are they fixed on the person of God? Are my values, the things that give me purpose, the things I believe, are they fixed on the person of God? Are my passions, the things that breathe life into me, are they fixed on the person of God or do I try to find those things somewhere else? It becomes convicting, doesn't it? Now, Eusebia godliness, it, it appears over 15 times in the New Testament, and it has an observable element that goes along with it. This inward transformation, this fixing of our desires and values and passions on Jesus, it, it spills over into outward action. Whether that's praying like Jesus or spending time with God like Jesus, caring about the things Jesus cared about, that, that turns into an outward action. And that's why the the false teachers can manipulate it and and partially fake it. They pretend to be pious or godly, but their teaching and their motives give them away. The teaching that is from God should conform to godliness. So our teaching should be growing godliness. It should be growing our affections for God, and our actions should be mirroring God's more. Godliness puts us on a trajectory to being more like Jesus. This is not happening with the false teachers. Like they, they were set on a different trajectory. Not only is their teaching off, but, but look at their behavior and the effects. It says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy and strife and abusive language, evil suspicions and, and constant friction between men of deprived mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. <laughs> so these, these false teachers are, are puffed up. Like they're just prideful. And they're making confident assertions when they actually don't know anything. Like they're openly declaring things about God when spiritually they know nothing. Can you imagine going into heart surgery, getting wheeled in on one of those gurneys, and just making small talk with the surgeon, you know, like, How's your day going? How you doing? Where'd you get your medical degree from? I would ask that. I don't know if that's small talk questions, but. And as you're being wheeled in with some follow-up questions, you find out that this surgeon doesn't actually have a medical degree. This surgeon doesn't actually have any medical experience. In fact, the only things they know about medical stuff is from House and Gray's Anatomy. Like, would you be okay with that? Would you not run away from those people? Or if you have heart condition, maybe walk quickly away from those people. That is what is happening spiritually here. Like these teachers are saying things about God and and they don't know anything. They're not qualified. They're so puffed up with themselves that they're blind. In chapter one, Paul says, they have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or things about which they make confident assertions. Would you not run away from this person's teaching? Not everyone is. People in Ephesus are rushing forward for it. And these false teachers are leading people away from God. They're injecting chaos into the church. Eternal things are at stake if they're allowed to continue. And that's why Timothy's charge to rebuke them is so important. 
Context makes it clear that this was not an honest mistake, that these teachers in the church who made a continual and prideful choice to turn away from Jesus' words and turn to their own speculations. And so spiritual disease sets in. These teachers have a morbid interest. It's a sickly craving for controversy. They're never the people you walk away feeling refreshed by. Rather, their conversations, it stirs the flesh up inside you. Whenever they start talking, foul things come out of it. There's an annoyance and a desire for the good things other people have. There's abusive speech which tears others down. Whether true or false, there's no gentleness there. They don't speak well of other people in positions of leadership. There's always a new suspicion or fault-finding activity that they are pursuing. And there's nothing new under the sun, right? Like this has been around since sin. This is what we would expect of the world. If you go on any of the social media platforms, if you go on Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or TikTok or Blurg, all right, the last one I just made up because some of these names are just getting ridiculous. But if you go on any of the social media platforms, you will find abusive speech which tears others down. You'll find evil suspicions, some fault-finding activity against their opponents. You'll find overall envy and strife. <laughs> like, was this not the entire election cycle? Whether you were Republican or Democrat or caught in the middle, this was just going around and around and around. And the problem is that, that this is inside the Ephesian church. How would you feel if every time I got up here, I started going off about greenhouse? <laughs> if I started saying that they weren't doing a good job with either the college students or with the young professionals? That'd be a lie, by the way. I love hearing what God is doing in that ministry. Or if I got up here and started contradicting the other pastors on staff in doubting their intentions. If I started stirring up suspicions by saying, let me tell it to you straight. This is what they don't want you to hear. Like, Pastor Mark, he doesn't want you to know this. Rich and Michael, they're wrong. Look, let me tell it to you this way. This is the truth. Can you see how, how that would only result in erosion and tearing down of each other? Like, there's no trust that can grow there. Decay sets in, especially if multiple people are ping-ponging this back and forth. Paul says there's this constant friction between men of ruined minds who have robbed themselves of the truth. Their way of thinking is not healthy. There's no spiritual growth getting into their minds and attitudes. Their reasoning, their motives, their thoughts are spiritually breaking down. They're, they're de decaying. These false teachers have wholly rejected the gospel and its blessings and, and pursued something else, and, and they're starting to unravel because of it. And, and it's because of the trajectory of their desires. Our true desires, values, and passions are, are to be on God. Godliness, it's supposed to be growing in our life. And this is one example of what happens when something else hijacks those desires. These are not godly teachers. These are con men. The poison apple shows its effect, right? So, so what is the desire that, that sent them spiraling along this path? We see it at the end of verse 5. The false teachers are those who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. <laughs> it's all about the green, like, the false teachers are, are consumed with money. It is a material financial gain that they're craving. 
And here's how it worked. In Paul's day and age, you would charge people admission to hear your teaching, kind of like a conference today. And so the more prestigious or the better a person's image or message, the more they could charge. Hence the false teacher's obsessions with controversial questions and disputes about words that Paul mentioned earlier. The false teachers have a vested interest in tearing others down and propping themselves up. Their image and prestige is important for their profits. Nothing's going to get in the way of them and their money. Now, now just as a side note, Paul, Paul argues in the chapter before this that an elder that rules well should be worthy of double honor and that the laborer deserves his wages. So his problem is not with teachers and the church getting paid. His problem is with their ulterior motive. Their true desires are not for God or shepherding the flock, but for money. And their pursuit of money has led them to a hijacked godliness, one that has led them further away from God. Paul is looking backward on these teachers' trajectory and traces all these things back to their desire for money. What we desire and value, it will determine the trajectory of our life. These false teachers are faking church because they suppose it's something they can squeeze wealth from. And you can almost hear Paul's incredulous tone when he says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. These false teachers wrongly thought that godliness was a uh, get-rich-quick scheme. (laughs) But in all actuality, godliness does lead to great wealth. The trajectory of godliness is great wealth when something else grows alongside it. See, the false teachers have it backwards. It's not a prosperity gospel where, where God promises that you're going to have material wealth on this side of eternity. Like you, you don't have to look farther than Jesus and his 12 disciples to discover that. No, Paul's talking about a spiritual wealth that has value in both this life and the next. The way you can tell if you're growing in authentic godliness, if you're actually putting your desires and values and passions on God, is tied up with material contentments. As, as my uh, two-year-old Finn would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, does that mean that I shouldn't aspire to rise through the corporate ladder? Does that mean that I shouldn't want a bigger house or, or a better pay? Paul borrows this word contentment from a group of philosophers called the Stoics. And the Stoics' ideal was that no matter what their external circumstances would be, they would rise above it. They would lack nothing because they would quench their desires and they would want nothing. They would become independent no matter what they encountered. And, and that sounds kind of noble, doesn't it? But it teaches you to bury your emotions, to bury your desires. And it's actually prideful when you break it down. To be dependent on no one means you're dependent on yourself. That runs contrary to the gospel. God does not want us to be dependent on ourselves. He wants us to be dependent on him. So Paul is repurposing this word contentment. When we put our true desires, value, and passions on God, when that spills over into our outward actions, then our resources are in God. The only way to drive out discontentment is to find something better. Isn't that true? Like your, your phone is awesome. Your Android, iPhone, whatever is great until the next version comes out. And then it's, it's a little less, isn't it? Like it doesn't have the cool new printer that the other one probably has or something. The reason that contentment follows godliness is because you've already found the best thing. Like when your desires and values and passions are on God, 
what is going to beat that? Did God work himself out of a job by creating something more sustaining or more fulfilling than himself? That is why godly teaching, scripture-based, life-giving teaching, should produce and conform to godliness. God is using his word to reveal things about himself that we long for, that we were created for. Even in a pandemic like this, he gives us something greater than material comfort. And if if 2020 has shown me anything, it's that I need more of this godliness that leads to contentment. Just to put my my cards on the table, there were were a lot of outward circumstances, material things in 2020 that, that I begrudged that I was discontent with. Even with all my physical needs met, even with the Holy Spirit residing in me, I I wasn't content. Like, there are days when when I'm not content with my vehicles. I have two young boys and a child on the way, and and it would be really nice to have a minivan. That's how you know you're an adult, right? Like an adult parent. Like, who dreams of a minivan? (laughs) There are days when I'm not content with my house. Like, working at home during this pandemic has been hard. It's been difficult. And, and, and I'm, I'm grateful for what I have. Don't get me wrong. I'm so grateful for it. But the pandemic has brought out grumbling. My desires, values, and passions, they aren't always fixed on Jesus. So it's with understanding and humility that I ask, are yours? I can have discontentment that grows inside me. I can have grumbling that starts to manifest. And and if I'm not careful, it can choke my heart. I have to continue to train myself for godliness. Train myself to put my desires back on God. I need God's help to transform my desires, to keep putting in these course corrections to make sure I'm on the right trajectory. Contentment is having what is adequate. (laughs) It's having all that you need. It's okay to be successful and to have wealth, We're going to look at that at the end. But it's not okay if it's keeping you from Jesus. There are many ways to bless other people without selling everything you have. But desires are slippery. Do we have a greater peace about the material things around us? Do we have a greater detachment from them the more we learn about God? The presence of grumbling shows we're not content. It shows we're lacking something. That's why godliness with discontentment Growing up together, this leads to great spiritual wealth. Paul Paul then supports this by saying in verse 7, For if we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. I I don't know about you guys. I've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul trailing behind it. Just haven't seen it yet. Or or a baby coming out of the womb with with like a backpack of their most prized possessions. We, We come into the world with nothing. We leave the world with nothing material. The, the point is, why not store up, for some, store up something for yourself that you can take with you? Wealth that you can use now and, and that carries over with you. If godliness, if being more like Jesus is profitable in this life and the next one, then, then why wouldn't we want to put ourselves on that trajectory? Well, why wouldn't we want to check and recheck ourselves to make sure we're on that trajectory? When we run out of heartbeats, we're not taking anything material with us. Verse 8, he says, If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. I said earlier, the only way to drive out discontentment is to find something better. We can be content with just food and covering 
because we have found something better. Paul says food and clothing because those are the necessities of his time. And, and I need to veer off here for a second because I, I know we're still riding out this pandemic. I know there are people that, that can't work that would love to work. People that have fallen on a hard time because of it. Please let the church be the church. Like, there's no shame. There, there's no judgment in coming to us for help. People have generously donated so that we can help others in need. That Paul is not saying anything contrary. He's saying you need the necessities. And so if this pandemic has been hard on you, please come talk to us. Our care pastor, Gary Post, he is always sending out emails asking to send your bills to us, whether it's groceries or transportation or housing or, or something else. Please let us be the church to you. You'll notice that, that Paul switches to inclusive language here. In this verse, in the one prior, he starts using we. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. This, this is true for Paul too. Paul knows this well. He, he's not above it. He's experienced it. He, he writes elsewhere in Philippians chapter 4. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And, and do you see Paul's dependence on God in that? He doesn't have an independence. He's not relying on himself. He's relying on God. I have learned. It took me time, but I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That's what Paul says. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So I can face wealth, and I can face when the economy turns downwards. My, my ultimate satisfaction isn't in stuff or what I can do with that stuff. It's in Jesus. Are we growing in our contentment because of Jesus? Are we less attached to the things we have, even if God has given us more? Or do we have to make coarse adjustments throughout it? Look at the flip side of the coin. In verse 9, he says, But those who, want to be, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the, peer, the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The desire for material possessions, for wealth, is one of the most dangerous things for us. What you value determines the trajectory of your life. If money, wealth, and stuff is the most important thing to you, then you can expect to be pierced by many griefs, both material and spiritual. There's just no other way to tuck around that. Like, that's what God says, both here through Paul and also in Jesus' earthly ministry. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus himself says, you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. The ultimate desire of one is going to supersede and pull you away from the other. Now, I, I need you to hear me say this. Like, that, that doesn't mean if you're wealthy that you've done something wrong, that, that you should be judged or condemned. Like, I, I would argue that most people in the United States that we're all wealthy, especially when you consider third world countries. Like, it's a comparative term, rich. 
Money is amoral. In itself, it's neither good nor bad. That there are upper class people, there's middle class people, and there's lower class people in the Bible who are all spoken well of, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Money is not the issue. We're talking about desires. (laughs) And God sees those very clearly, even if others don't. Instead of finding our desires or values or passions in God, if God is not enough for you, then you're going to look elsewhere. And money is going to be an obvious place. It gives you control. It gives you power. It gives you value in other people's eyes. And Paul says that this desire for money will eventually lead to a domino effect. First, you can get lured into a specific temptation. It starts out with a whisper, an opportunity to do something that others would frown upon something that is not in your best interest. Maybe it's the suggestion that you lie about your actual hours, about the work you did or did not do. Maybe your pursuit of money has come at the expense of other things. Maybe it's cost you Bible studies or prayer time or family time or church time. But but the whisper will turn into an invitation and it becomes a snare. It becomes a trap. Has anyone ever had to set up uh, mouse traps before? I'm an accountant, and so I'm way too cheap to buy anything but those little wooden things, right, that are impossible to set. Oh, I hate it. It's like I'm dismantling a bomb with, like, how careful I am at setting it. And the reason is because it is so effective. Like, the, it's not just that the lever flips over and slams into the mouse. It's that it does it so quickly that the mouse doesn't even have time to notice Like, I don't want my fingers anywhere near that if it's going to go off that quickly. When your ultimate desire in life is to live comfortably and to have wealth, then all Satan has to do is to bait the trap and set it. It snaps so quickly that you don't even have time to realize that you're caught. Eventually, a complete desire for wealth is going to plunge one into ruin and destruction. Happy New Year, right? But, but this is important. The, the desire of money, it's as though we've chained this heavy rock to our foot and we've thrown it overboard into the sea. Now, depending how long that chain is, you may not feel it right away. You may just hear the clinking going down. But eventually, that desire for money is going to plunge you into ruin and destruction. Like, who would want that? Well, That's not the way the devil sells it, is it? He whispers lies and half-truths about how if you just had more money, you could be content. If you just had a slightly bigger house, if you just had that next level of income, then you would have all that you need. The love of money isn't the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. But it is a root of all kinds of evil. It can lead you to a buffet of all kinds of different monstrosities if you walk its path. But, but most importantly, the desire of money, it leads away from Jesus, away from the faith. Do, do we teach our kids like, how dangerous a love of money is? Like Anything that plunges something into ruin and destruction is what I want to keep my kids far away from. Like, are we deliberate about explaining that it can lead us away from Jesus? Or do they hear from us, or maybe do they see in us the need to be successful in the eyes of the world? That true happiness lies with what you accumulate with stuff. Now, I, 
I want what's best for my boys. I, I want them to be successful, to be good stewards. But, but I so much more want them to love Jesus. Like, I, I want that to be the trajectory of their lives. And they'll have to choose that. But I'm going to keep trying to put in course corrections wherever I can to guide their hearts. Paul rightly tells Timothy in verse 11, But flee from these things, you man of God. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. What you value determines the trajectory of your life. Don't pursue money. Pursue righteousness. Train yourself for godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. What does that mean for us? Whether we're in this room or or streaming online, what does that mean for our money? Paul addresses that later in verse 17. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, instruct those who are rich to give away all their money. Paul is acknowledging that there are rich Christian people in Ephesus. And the way he instructs them is extremely important. He doesn't micromanage them. He doesn't place judgment or condemnation on them. He says, fix your hope on God. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Can we enjoy our wealth? Sure. (laughs) There's freedom for that. God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, but not to the extent that it takes us or our desires away from God. Not if it means that we're no longer ready to share. I have an older ministry friend. uh, He shares the same birthday as me, and he did my my marriage counseling a while back. And and I'll never forget something that he told me in the midst of it. We, We were talking about finances in a marriage, and I, th- I think he was probably in his, his mid-40s. And he and his wife had never turned someone away when they came asking him for supports. Whether it was for missionaries or mission trips or kingdom work, never. <laughs> he never turned them down. Now, he's proactive, too. He's not just reactive. But he is centered on godly things. That is, not a, that is a heart that, that is ready to share even when it's inconvenient, even when it means sacrificing other things that we could have spent the money on. The closer and better we get at putting our desires, our values, our passions on God, (laughs) at doing the things Jesus did, the more our attachment to possessions should fade. The New Year's a great time just to think about your trajectory in life, where you've come from, where you want to go. I put some reflective questions in the sermon notes. It would be really beneficial if, if later on you just went through them honestly. And if you didn't grab sermon notes here or you're watching online, you can download them off the website. We just finished celebrating Christmas, and, and that's a time when God emptied himself, when he exhibited godliness by entering into creation as a baby boy. Jesus didn't pursue power and wealth on earth. He didn't grumble about his meager accommodations. He put his desires, his value, his passions on God the Father. 
That was shown in all of Jesus' interactions, whether he was tender with others or whether he was firm. The way he used his miracles, the way he refused to use his miracles. He was always focused in pursuing God the Father. And when the ultimate test came, when when Jesus was faced with dying on the cross or choosing his own well-being, he chose godliness. (laughs) Jesus is godliness. He said, not my will be done, Father, but yours. Jesus' desire has always been and will always be on God the Father. So he died on the cross. He, He took all the evil things I've ever done, all the evil things that you've ever done, and he separated them as far as east is from west. And then not even death could stop him. Like he was raised again on the third day. Jesus is alive today. We don't worship a dead God, but a live one. Why wouldn't I want to pursue that God? If stuff is getting in my way, why wouldn't I want to eject that stuff or, or, or cut my attachments to it? He continues to invite us into that relationship with himself. If you aren't a follower of Jesus, this is your chance. Profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's Romans 10.9. You will be saved. Pandemics will come. Stock markets will change. Fortunes will be won and lost in the days ahead. We're called to fix our hope, not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. We're going to celebrate communion here in just a moment. And it's an opportunity to do just that. It's a witness to each other that we have put our hope on God. It's a chance to rejoice at what Jesus has already done and to bear witness about what we know he will do in the future. And we have a tradition where we lead, read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul talks about uh, communion. So I'm going to read that right now. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, even if you don't attend here, maybe you're catching this live stream for the first time, we would invite you to join us in this. Michael's going to come up with his team and they're going to play some some worship music here in a a minute. But in the meantime, we, we invite you to examine yourselves, to reflect on the love that God has for you. And, and when you're ready, just come up to one of the tables or there's a table in the back and there's two cups with the elements. Grab both cups and, and just bring those back to your seats and I'll walk you through the rest after that. If you are physically able, would you stand with me when we do this? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Later that night, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we praise you for who you are. (laughs) We praise you that you are the greatest thing that our, our souls can ever find. And I pray that you would bring contentment to us, Lord. 
that our congregation would be known as, as a congregation that is godly and content in you. I thank you so much for the chance to, to talk about you, Lord, the, the chance to gather with, with my brothers and sisters and, and glorify your name. And I pray that you would protect us in this week to come, that we would look at our trajectories in this life. And we thank you for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name that we do all these things. Amen. Have a great morning, New Hope. It's good to be with you.